philanthropy can't support research forever. The federal government has to step in. And, you know, we're not talking about cannabis here. We're talking about these are real life-saving treatments that are going to be the future of mental health care. What we're talking about today with psilocybin and MDMA and ibogaine and LSD in five and 10 years, we may not even be talking about those drugs, right? Like you and I know that there's going to be derivatives and novel drugs and they're going to be shorter duration, longer duration, safer. They're going to do two different things. Like it's going to be all different. But the only way to do that is through federal money. Welcome back to the Trip Report podcast, production of Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. Today I'm speaking with Marcus Capone, co-founder of Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions, a nonprofit that seeks to create access to psychedelic medicine for veterans of the armed forces. He is also the co-founder and CEO of Taramind, a public benefit corporation that is making psychedelic medicine a widely available employee benefit. Whenever you hear about federal programs, Senate bills, or congressional initiatives for psychedelics, two things usually stand out. First, they're often bipartisan efforts, a rarity in the current political environment. And second, they seek to fund research or access for veterans. In my experience, the veterans as champions of psychedelic medicine narrative catches a lot of people by surprise when they first hear about it. But quickly, they connect the dots as they recollect the staggering numbers of veteran suicides that periodically makes the news. As Marcus and I discuss, having veterans as proponents of psychedelic medicine is one of the biggest levers changing the public perception of these compounds. Unfortunately, access through the Veterans Health Administration is not possible due to their illegal status. And so many vets seeking treatment have to leave the country they fought for to access the medicine that they need. This is where vets and other veteran-focused nonprofits come in. In this conversation, Marcus and I discuss his military career and the difficulty of his post-deployment return to civilian life, the origin story of veterans exploring treatment solutions, persistent stigma of psychedelics in the military community, the power of Ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT, the challenge of nonprofit work, Tara Mind, and the future of integrating psychedelics into healthcare. And now I bring you my conversation with Marcus Capone. I'm I'm really interested in your perspective, and we talked about this in our in our call last week. Is the psychedelic domain is very broad and kind of wide reaching, and 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 I think that the the cardinal metaphor in my mind is of the the blind man and the elephant, and there's so many different parts of of this domain, and it's drug policy reform, it's mental health treatment, it's spiritual development, it's psychopharmacology for some, it's it's really broad and it's really dynamic, and. And I think you have a unique vantage point where you are in contact with so many different parts of, of this ecosystem. And one of which I consider sort of the, the sharp end of the spear or the leading edge of the spear with regards to the role that veterans' mental health is playing in this ecosystem or this renaissance or the advancement of of psychedelic medicines writ large. And so I, I I suppose we could start there naturally, if that if that makes sense for you. And you know, I wanted to ask a question that might get us into that. And 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 that is who is Chad Wilkinson? <laughs> yeah. Wow. 
So Chad was a very good friend. He was a teammate. He was a father, a husband, and he was, I mean, he was just an amazing individual. We worked together as SEALs. Funny story, he, he, he left the SEAL teams for a while and, and, and hopped in the private sector and bounced around in sales and, and ended up back in the, in the SEAL teams, I think, you know, as a young, you know, when you're young, it's more exciting than putting on a shirt and tie. And I think he figured that out <laughs> pretty quickly. But, you know, Chad's wife, Sarah, you know, is very close with Amber, my wife. Mm-hmm. And it really kicked off, I think, when Chad died by suicide, I think that shook the whole SEAL community. It especially shook, you know, the unit that he was with and the individuals that knew him. Because when you know somebody and you think there's nothing wrong and then something happens, everybody really scratches their head. Not just scratches mm-hmm. their head, they turn around and go, like, am I next? You know, and those are the conversations that, that were going on was that here's an individual who was honestly probably one of the most high-performing skills that I worked with, the most squared away individual, the most loving individual, most caring individual, most friendly individual. He was just everything. He was you know, the best dad, the best husband, um, all the above, best CrossFitter. Damn him. Like, you're like, every time you'd get right here, he'd like go right there. You know, him and his wife, Sarah, owned a CrossFit gym in Virginia Beach. And one day, you know, he put his children on, on the bus when Sarah was out of town and, you know, took his own life. And it was really shocking. And at that point, if I want to bring in vets and psychedelics into the mix, Amber and I had been operating silently for about a year because this was so weird at the time and new and we didn't know anything. You know, we were, we just wanted to help people. And I didn't know, you know, I wasn't making a dollar. I still didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. I was afraid that if individuals found out that Amber and I were funding people who are struggling to go do psychedelic therapy in places where they're legal, we thought, like, I couldn't get a job at, like, J.P. Morgan or I couldn't do anything because because it's it's taboo. But... Amber and I were sitting at the chapel in Virginia Beach, the same one that unfortunately we've been to too many times, literally, you know, from 9-11 to that point, we were there forever. And we looked around and we just like looking at individuals just going, this isn't right. Like, is this the next wave of, of deaths in our community? Like we just fought war for forever for 15 years i think up until that point and and now i got to be back in this funeral for for brothers that i served with that i care about that now are coming home with invisible wounds that the traditional system is failing like literally failing and and being here and you know amber just starts shaking uncontrollably you know i remember that and she's like we can't you know we, we just, we can't let this happen. And so like, who are we? You know, I mean, again, who are we? What do we know? But we knew that Amber had a best friend in Sarah. I had a very close friend in Chad that I worked with that was just amazing, incredible, outstanding. And nobody saw this coming. Like this was just, 
Like what happened? And so, you know, the conversation was like, what's going to happen next? Who's it going to happen next to? Can I have a moment where something's just not right? Or what if my, my brain's not working right? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is probably what's going on, right? Yeah. You know, we're finding out all these subconcussive blows, all these traumatic brain injuries are having a real effect. And so we just said, we can't hide this anymore. Like we can't not talk about it. We're just going to have to start talking about it because if we can help just one person or maybe what we speak about, if it can help one person that maybe not thinking correctly or just thinking that like their life is not good here anymore and that they don't deserve to be here or whatever bullshit voice that's going on in our heads, right? You know, we're not our thoughts. Our actions are our thoughts. But the problem is we get so in our heads and we have these loops that think we're not good enough for society. We're not good enough for our spouse. We're not going to be successful in a career or whatever you're thinking that's false. You know, many of us, before we get help, really think that's true. And and none of us know truly what was going on inside Chad's head. I wish we did. But our thought was, we're not going to let this happen again. And if we could help one person, and I hate to say this because you can look back at Monday morning quarterback and look in the rearview mirror all day, but you know, maybe if this option was out there and he knew about it or Sarah knew about it, you know, maybe things would be different. But you know, I don't, I don't want to put that on anyone, especially Sarah, who's so strong and so good. But you know, Chad and man, you just blew me away. You, started, you know, when you opened up with that, but he was kind of the, 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 the birth for all this that is happening. You know, we just felt like we had to step out and do something. And so I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was an interview or podcast or, or, or what, but we just said, you know what, we're going to speak about this. I don't care what anybody thinks. Like people are definitely going to think it's weird. doesn't matter. This is needed. And, you know, this is uh, 100% needed. So we just, started telling our story a little bit. And the more we told our story, the more people reached out. And it was like almost the opposite of that stupid voice in my head going, well, people are going to think this is weird and they're going to judge you. But the more I spoke out, the more people reached out, the more people who reached out, these were individuals who were struggling, Zach. And so we would figure out a way to to find money and get them paid for. And so it just, that was a cycle. And I I don't know if there's going to be a start to a five-hour podcast or what, but, (laughs) you know, it was the start of everything and it was really important. Yeah. Amber is very good about saying, the more you speak about this, the more you can let people know you're vulnerable in showing, not weak, vulnerable in showing that it's okay to tell individuals like, you know what? Between the ears, I am struggling right now. Just like I got a shoulder injury or a knee injury or you know something's wrong with my back, I go get it fixed and I get back in the game, in the fight, to my job, to my whatever it is. That's all it is, right? We're not saying you're damaged forever. And I think when I I mean when I grew up, I remember, you know, parents would whisper like, oh, their kid has ADD or they're on, you know, Adderall or whatever or or Ritalin and all these things that you know, we grew up thinking like anyone that has a mental health issue is weird, is is damaged. So we're just trying to change that stigma. So I, I appreciate that. I realize I may have caught you off guard with that question right out of the gate. That's why you're good. It was a, <laughs> That's why you do what you do, Zach. Struck me as a uh, an influential person in this story. And, and so I wonder if we can go back to somewhat of the beginning, but we want to discuss a few different topics here. But 
there's obviously a lot in your story. And so I'm curious if you can kind of bring us back to the beginning of your your career in the military and just the trajectory of that period of your life that that perhaps led to you know the period of time leading up to to that funeral that you just discussed you know i out of college or even before college a year before I, I graduated is when i decided that you know i wanted to go down this route i i was that 22 year old that didn't want to put on a shirt and tie step off in the private sector i was a jock you know i played i played ball i played everything but I studied hard in school also. So as much trouble as I got in and stupid stuff and fights and things, I made sure to, to, to work hard in the classroom and, and on the field. So to me, this was an easy transition, doing something that was team oriented. And so as soon as graduation, it was an exciting time. Amber and I got uh, pregnant with Caden. I graduated from Southern Illinois University. We got married and I enlisted in the Navy to become a SEAL. So it was a pretty wild time. I remember sending an email to one of my buddies. It was probably like one of the first emails I probably ever sent. I just said, hey, sit down. I just got to tell you what's going on right now. <laughs> His response was like, holy shit. And so I loved every moment of the military. I went in there for a reason. And for me, it was to, it was to have fun. It was to do something you know bigger than myself. It was to stay in shape. It was to be around individuals that were like you. And, you know, all the stuff I read, like, you know, the, the teammates and the bonds that you make are just like lifelong. And to me, they're like, what's better than that at that time? And so, I don't know, probably 2003 was my first deployment. And, you know, that just started the cycle of you know, going back and forth overseas. You know, if you talk to Amber, every time you come home, it felt like you left a little bit of yourself mm. somewhere. But you don't ever see this. Like, it's to you, it's is normal. To, to, to everybody else in the outside world, they can really see it. My parents, yeah. the kids, Amber, friends. But when you're in your bubble, when you're working with your teammates and you know, you're all the same for the most part. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't want to say that like I went to war and came back different or damaged. I think this started a long time earlier as a child and maybe mm -hmm. some of the things I experienced that pushed me into wanting to become a soldier. And then I think some of the stuff in the military just helped that along, maybe highlighted some of the issues that were there. I, I don't know. You know, like I'm not, I don't want to, I don't, don't want to dissect it. So, so maybe it was a few combat deployments. Maybe it was some hard knocks to my head over the years, concussions and things like that. And maybe while I was serving, right, lost one of my best friends and, you know, lost a lot of friends, really. And we saw, obviously, a lot of stuff that you can never unsee. You just can't. And yeah. at the time, it seems normal. Maybe some of the stuff is gruesome and gross and things that are happening or, you know, again, you don't think about it. You're just like, oh, this is, this is what I'm supposed to do. Like, you know, you lose a helicopter of friends. You're like, oh, this is, you know, this is, I'm a tough guy. Like, this is supposed to happen. I'm going to war. Like, I'm supposed yeah. to lose friends and I'm not, I'm supposed to just, brush it off, drink a bottle of whiskey, take a handful of Ambien to go to bed, wake up and work out and yeah. do it again. There's only so long that you can do that. And so I think when it all slowed down, Zach, is like, you know, towards the end of my career, there was like a shift in, I don't know what it was, like loss of purpose or loss of excitement or loss of something, you know, 
started seeing a psychologist in I think around 2007 or eight. And as I was writing, right at the time, we were having like really heavy losses. So we were doing a lot mm-hmm. of like, quote unquote, drinking and a lot of celebrating and a lot of just like anger and, you know, all of it. And that's probably part of all of this, right? And yeah, it was just, it was just a, it was, it was an awesome time, but it was also a weird time. I was doing everything I wanted to do. I'm like, oh, this is it. Like we're doing it yeah. all. We're, you know, they say, I remember one of my, my senior leaders once told me, they said, Marcus, be careful what you wish for. Um, mm-hmm. You might get it. You might get it. You know, it's actually right after Red Wings, right after the, the helicopter went down, the whole lone survivor incident with Marcus Luttrell. I don't know if you know any of that story, but they did a, they did a movie on it. But, you know, someone said, hey, be careful what you wish for, you know, mm-hmm. because at the time, people just wished to get in a gunfight. They wished to go to war. Like, that was why you yeah. did that. But as you, we all know, there's, there's consequences to that, both physically, of course, and mentally, which nobody thinks about. Right. And I, I was medically retired in 2013 because I really had a, from, from the first day I went to see a psych, I had a pretty big medical record and the, towards the last couple of years of my career, it was all around mental health. Started mm. taking SSRIs and started seeing multiple therapists and psychologists and like, I couldn't even count or couldn't even tell you how many. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I could have just got out separated and, and moved on, but there was a, a medical doctor on the West coast who just said like, dude, like, no, <laughs> we're not even going to let you go because this is what's going to happen. We're going to let you go into nothing. You're going to have no support. You're going to fall off the edge in like bad. And like, then it can get really bad. And so like, like technically wouldn't let me leave and basically gave me a medical retirement and it took like nine months, but you know what? It's worth it. You know, I get healthcare benefits and it's, you know, that part is great. And I'm glad they did that, but I just wanted to run. And that's, I don't know if people like, I literally, I wanted to turn my back and run as fast as I could away from the military. And so that, you know, that's kind of what was going on at that time. So medical retirement, does that mean that, did you kind of move into the private sector yeah, or right, right away. to school mm-hmm. or? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to do. Like, I just wanted to get away and basically run away from everybody and everything. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to know anybody, all my friends. Like, it was just weird, you know, it, mm-hmm. it just, just wanted to go. So I'm I'm out now. It's 2013, and while I was on active duty, I actually went to I have a graduate degree from University of San Diego. So I was doing that while I was instructing. So I was running a, mm-hmm. a small division, teaching close quarters combat for mm-hmm. new students, and I was going to school both in person and online. So it was like a hybrid. We'd yeah. go to I'd go to USD like for the full weekend once a month, and then you know, just packed with stuff in the evenings. And so were you I was, living in, was, was this in San Diego? San Diego. Yeah. So we were living in San Diego. And when I was finished with the military in 13, I finished grad school and I went to work for Merrill Lynch in private banking. It was, it was great. It was, you know, it was great, but it wasn't great. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, it was something new, but I'd already started my, my slow spiral at that point. You know, and every year just got worse until it kind of came to yeah. a head in 2017. And we should clarify you were a special ops Navy SEAL, is that right? C- correct. So, I, yes, I was in special operations. I was a Navy SEAL, specialized units, small, unconventional forces. And the, as I understand it, the the training involved in that is 
superhuman, you might say, or the 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 training and sort of the what would you call it the entry criteria yeah. into into that. And I wonder if you've thought about or considered, or if in fact this is well known or established, and I've just missed it. But the mental attributes that afford somebody the opportunity to become a special operations Navy SEAL is probably orders of magnitude greater in grit, mental toughness, ability to endure physical hardship than the average person. Yeah, I mean turn off pain. Yeah. And 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 I wonder is there a is there is there a dark side to that that strength that plays a negative role or 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 has a downside effect in in terms of being able to bear a trauma load or psychological injury. Am I, am I making sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, I, I think we did a really good job of compartmentalizing. You know, we were yeah. really good at having multiple lives in terms of here's my work life, here's my home life. Mm-hmm. Work life you usually seem to be always good. Home life, for some reason, always seemed to be not so good. And maybe you brought a lot of that stuff into other parts of your life. But we were really good at cutting off pain, emotion, mm-hmm. you know, care on some levels on some things. I, I mean, I remember sometimes, you know, psychologists trying to think, are we sociopaths? Are we psychopaths? Like, what's the line there? You know, we loved, like, who loves going to war? <laughs> I mean, you know, all our guys did. We loved it, mm-hmm. literally. And most of us did. But then when you try to share that same like yeah excitement with other people, literally yeah. they like turn their head sideways and like scratch their head. Yeah. It's like, what is wrong with this individual? Yeah. And so we're definitely cut from a different piece of cloth. And maybe that piece of cloth mm-hmm. was shaped as a like I said, as a as a child, you know, early child or a teenager or or whatever to make you into this individual that enjoys doing all these things. And again, you don't, I mean, on the other side of that, like you don't have to be all those things, but I feel like that is like the stereotypical individual. Yeah. Cause I mean, I've worked with plenty of individuals that I, I just looked up with that I thought were very level-headed and nice and yeah. spiritual or religious. And, and so you kind of have all walks of life. Yeah. Yeah. So you're out of the military at this point. It's it's after 2013, I, I imagine. And you're, mm-hmm. you're you're working in banking, and and sorry, I, I I cut off your story there. But when did you start Vets? Vets started. I mean, yeah, I, I officially we received our 501c3 status by the IRS in 2019. Mm-hmm. But we were raising money and funding individuals right at like not right after my two year, pretty close after 2017. Like right into 2000, because it was November 11th, ironically, yeah. Veterans Day on 2000. Veterans Day, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 2017. So, so that, okay. So that was the year. 2017 was when you had your first IBN experience. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So up until that point, Zach, is five brain clinics, multiple antidepressants mm. and mood stabilizers. I was on antidepressants for seven years straight. And so days that I would travel or if I forgot to take them one or two days, like talk about total, literally mm-hmm. uh, anxiety attacks. Like you cannot, believe, I mean, you cannot believe 
are brain when you say brain clinics is that like neurotherapy is that deep brain stimulation all, all of it everything yeah. from mris to spec scans to spinning upside down to yeah doing cognitive testing tms mert like hyperbaric oxygen um all of it wow all of it botox for headaches acupuncture all over you know mm-hmm. just Anything that they can do, right? And like these are all alternative yeah. therapies because at the end of the day, we're we have extremely comorbid. We just they're yeah. like we don't know what the hell is wrong with this individual. Like, yeah. is it a brain thing? It is. Is it a mental health thing? Is it depression? Is it trauma? Yeah. Is it both? Is it? I don't know. You know, is it medication? Is it low testosterone? Yeah. Like, it's all of the above, right? And that's why. Yeah. It's so yeah. that's why these are so hard to treat too, Zach. It's just because there's a lot of a lot of things there. And so when you do all those things. Here's the, the data will say every time you do a treatment that doesn't work, you're like three times likelihood to relapse. And so when you do multiple treatments and you're not getting better, like you're, you're literally getting worse. Like you're mentally breaking down. You know, it came to a point where I didn't answer people. I wasn't, I didn't want to see people. I didn't want to work yeah. out. I didn't want to surf. I didn't want to play golf. I didn't want to do anything at all. I didn't want to get out of bed. I put my headphones on and try to listen to like music for hours and just like shut the world off. I just didn't want it. I wanted to be in like a fake place. Mm -hmm. And in 2017, Amber had been working with a doctor that was a specialist in sleep and hormone therapy. And, you know, I just say it's a Dr. Kirk Parsley and he's just incredible individual. And he had seen this work for others and he thought, I think this is something Marcus can benefit from. So he and Amber kind of mm-hmm. had been working together for like a year because I she had mentioned it to me about a year early and I thought it was <laughs> completely insane until you get to the point where you're like, I will do anything to get better. Mm-hmm. I don't care. Because my thought was, is this how I'm going to be for the next 40 years? Like, this is insane. Yeah. I cannot do this yeah. for another one year, let alone 40 or 50 years. So- the treatment was Ibogaine. I had no experience with psychedelics. I started doing some research. There wasn't a ton about it in 2017. Mm-hmm. There was there was enough, but like I knew anything about any of these different uh, sites or you know there wasn't a lot yeah. out there. And I think Michael Pollan's book was not written yet. Yeah, right. I think it was 2018. Yeah, yeah. Good timing, right? And what I read was that this was therapeutic. Like, this was not a quote unquote drug that I would get high on. Like this is healing. And so I thought, you know what? Okay. But like everything else, because I remember when I had my first beer, I remember thinking, how am I going to drink something? And it's going to make me feel weird. Like I just, that doesn't make, it didn't make any sense because I never did it before. I was like, I don't yeah. understand that. So same thing with began. I'm like, how is this supposed to heal me? Like, I don't get what it's supposed to do. It just, it doesn't make any sense. But I, I was willing to try anything. And so they arranged for me to, to go outside the country to, you know, a reputable center. And this was kind of arranged or you, you found out about it through another veteran. Is that, is that correct? Right. Yeah. Was, yeah. 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 Who, who had gotten better and yeah. same thing, like not in a good place, searching for answers. Same, you know, same thing Except you know, he had been in a lot longer than I have, but long story short, life-saving life-changing, 180, like life is good. How different was the information environment 
around this stuff within that community of veterans five years ago, seven years ago, however long it was. I mean, was this just like completely novel where there are a handful of guys who had had the experience? Like, one, I, I knew one. Yeah, I, I literally knew one person, and that was my sphere. That, that's how big it was. Mm-hmm. But even the person I knew, like, we didn't talk about it. I didn't know anything about it. There was nothing shared. It was yeah. like, just, hey, this is like, you should try this. I mean, that was. Oh, wow. Interesting. Oh, yeah. So there was no sort of like, it's going to blow your mind or tell, talk about the experience or. Wow, that's crazy. No, no. And let me tell you, preparation and integration, extremely important. <laughs> Do not just jump into an Ibogaine experience like you're jumping into a pool doing a cannonball. Yeah. So that was my introduction to psychedelics was Ibogaine yeah. and, and 5-MeO DMT. Why not? And yeah. In in this in the same sort of uh, mm-hmm. same treatment period of time, cycle. same yeah. treatment period. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, there's enough anecdotal evidence, maybe a tiny bit, tiny bit of data, you know, it shows a synergistic effect. But now, but the, there's more data saying that ibogaine by itself is just mm-hmm. as powerful and yeah. does everything it needs to because of the, the what it's doing physiologically to your brain. So. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's a nice ending to a very dark experience. Sure. And that's the kind of cherry on top if you want to talk to some you know, clinicians in the, in the space. And so, you know, if you want to get into the Ibogaine journey, I mean, it was like, it, I mean, it was, it was 12 plus hours of just complete hell. Like it literally was a bad trip. <laughs> I don't want to sugarcoat it. It was horrible for me. Now I've heard some people have blissful experiences. We'll, we'll get into that because I've now treated with ibogaine several times, and so my uh-huh. experiences now compared to my first time was definitely first different. One. Yeah, yeah. But but that first experience was like it literally brought me back to every bad image or experience I had in like my lifetime. It made me like watch them, repeat them, deal with them. And it was miserable and it was very dark. Were you prepared for that aspect of it? No, because I didn't understand what that meant. So if I tell you, you're going to experience, you know, X, Y, and Z and and this accident that you were in where you saw your best friend killed, like you're going to go back there and you're going to watch it. And you're Mm -hmm. you're like, "Ah," I mean, like, what do you mean? Like, do I see it? It's like, look like a cartoon. Like, mm, you know, for everybody, it's, it's very subjective. So you can be there first person, third person, like yeah. Ibogaine just takes you to wherever it wants to take you, right? Whatever your brain and the drug, whatever, however it's, if it's communicating, like that's what you're seeing. And so you never know what you're going to experience, but you see mm-hmm. all these things. And for me, it was just, it was, it was crazy. It was horrible. It was, it was dark. It was bloody. It was gory. It was a lot of fighting. It was just you know, if people want to say it hell, like it was like, it was like hell. And then it wasn't. So I went through like all this terrorizing stuff and some of it made sense. Some of it didn't, but then you go into the phase where it's like, I think it's called introspection. It's kind of like the second part of Ibogaine where you're not on this, like just almost like roller coaster where you're just constantly hearing like death metal music and buzzing to just, it's kind of peaceful. Now you're like dreaming in a way. So where you're in this awakened mm-hmm. dream state initially, 
of just hell, you're in like a different type of dream state. Yeah. And that one is like more reflecting. So you're kind of reflecting back on what happened and maybe you're seeing like different experiences that you experienced during the very intense first like four to six hours. And you're able to look at some of that stuff and it's a little bit lighter, you know, or it makes sense. Or you're having now new experiences that are lighter. And that's what I had. And the second part of it was the first part was like, okay, we're going to power wash you from the inside. It's going to hurt, but this is what you need. We're just going to scrub the filters like and hard and it's going to suck, but that's what you need. Second part was like, okay, you got it. Good. Now we're going to, now we're going to bring you back a little bit. And this is where like, I had a lot more visions of like Amber and Caden and Maggie and like we're family and it was a little bit more friendly and I got it. It was like, you have everything you need. It's right there. Right. So it's like, this is what you're leaving behind. This is what you have. Like, look, it's right here, you know? And then that was very insightful and, and it was beautiful, but it was still my first time. So I still had some anxiety. And then, I don't know, we're going on maybe 12 hours and you try to sleep, you don't sleep. So that was, you know, Friday night, you drop, you know, all into Saturday morning. It was like into Saturday afternoon where I was like trying to sleep, maybe having some dreams. So I really didn't wake up until like Sunday morning for me the first time. Mm -hmm. And I had my therapist actually there that night. She slept at the foot of the bed, Tibetan Buddhist, PhD, kind of done everything, masters in philosophy and, and theology and and, yeah. and everything. You know, addiction expert, all, all the above. And she was there trying to help throughout the experience. And I remember I'd wake up at sometimes during the experience like it frantic panic attacks. And she was there just like, hey, what what's going on? What are you seeing? So I talk about what I was seeing. She's like, okay, this is the therapy part of it, right? This is, this is, this is like yeah. integrating. This, this was like integrating yeah. during the experience, which again, there's no real protocols yet. There are, you know, they're starting to, there's, we're starting yeah. to get there. Yeah. But like, for me, I needed this. Like I needed like, yeah. <laughs> I needed my, my blanket to protect me. And she was my protector. Mm-hmm. And she would help kind of get through some of those rough spots. And then, you know, then she made sense of it as much as he could the next day. And, and, you know, we worked together for months, literally every week, maybe twice a week. But, but man, that Sunday, it just felt like the world just like fell off my shoulders, like just completely gone. Like everything that I was stressing out about all the anxiety, depression, just all of it. I felt like just got crumpled up and thrown away, you know, thrown in the fire. I I burned the man. And Good for you. it was unbelievable. And, you know, Amber came in and I remember she said she heard me coming down the hallway and she like didn't know what to expect. She was like, oh, she's like, what, what am I receiving right now? And she said, yeah. she's like, she could just see the look. It was just like, I was just lighter, brighter, different glow, you know, all the above. And I was just like, this is it. I mean, I literally said like, this is it. This is exactly what we need. And I said, I cannot believe that I didn't know about this, right? We don't know about this. And I was like, we're going to do something about that because mm-hmm. why did I just suffer for seven years? Why couldn't yeah. this be introduced right away? I appreciate the detailed depiction of your experience. And there's a few different ways I'm imagining taking this. So I'm just going to kind of roll with my gut. Yeah, on, on that's this. the best. But listen, I, listen to it. I wonder, was there an element of 
I don't know how to best articulate this because it's so different for everybody, but a spiritual or religious or a higher power quality of this, or we use terms like depression or anxiety and and you use the terms of a burden or a weight being released mm-hmm. from you. So what I'm so interested in and I, what I think is like really powerful about these experiences is that there is a felt, there's a somatic and a sort of an experiential quality that, that I think is missed when we use terms like depression or mental health. And then there's also this quality of maybe you would say the the separation of psychological and spiritual is a false dichotomy. And so I, take that how you will, but I, I'm, I'm curious if there was an element of, of your experience that you're, you're able to talk about or, or speak about in that domain. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I felt like the experience got so bad that like, this is hell. like, this is, you can't get any worse than this. Like this is, this is low. And I felt like that's how my life was. It was low. And, you know, I don't know if it was an ego death. I'm not even sure what ego death is, but I think, you know, it's probably part of the experience for sure. Oh, I I didn't even mention in my experience. No, I did have a point where I had a very kind of like white light moment, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of spiritual moment. And I don't know, you know, if you want to call that the aha moment or the moment of awakening or whatever it is, but I had that. And my first Ibogaine experience was just like, oh, this is like perfect. And it becomes even more perfect on 5-MeO. I mean, that's why 5 is called the, you know, the God molecule, because I had a real spiritual experience on 5 several times, several years later, when I was mm-hmm. able to actually let go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was like, oh, there's no doubt that there's like a higher power that's driving yeah all this. And it's not religious. It's a power, whether it's in us or around us, it's all of it. You know, so depression, anxiety, you know, go back to your your question. You know, those are just things that we, how we react to whatever's taking place. So maybe Mm -hmm. it's a, I don't want to say a loss, but a, a void of spirituality or Again, if you if you are religious, if it's Christianity mm-hmm. or Judaism or whatever it is, and you yeah. have that, you have that spiritual nature, you don't become depressed. You don't become anxious. Now, now, granted, right, right. if that was the answer to everything, they also would have that in the ER and yeah. mental health professions. Say, here, read this or do that, and you should get better. It doesn't work like that. Doesn't um, work that way. No, it doesn't work that way. Like sometimes you need a boost, right? I needed, <laughs> I needed the ibogaine tourniquet. I tell people, I said. I was bleeding out. This put a tourniquet on, stopped the bleeding, and then I was able to, to find myself again. And we all need that. And then after that, it's a great time to go introduce other things, right? Because I do think we're yeah. missing spiritually, for sure. Like we've gone away from yeah. connection. And when you have connection and you're comfortable knowing that when this is all said and done, we're fine. Like we shouldn't be yeah. scared. You know, this physical body is just going to kind of go away and our spirit's going to live on however it's going to live on elsewhere, then the the depression can lift, the anxiety can lift. You go, oh, wow, it's not that bad. (laughs) It's not about money or, you know, money's great and it helps you do things and have some fun. But at the end of the day, we're all going to the same place. Thanks for indulging me on that. I, you know, I I know that the nature of those kind of questions can be super personal. So I appreciate that. No, it is. And and, and Zach, I want to finish with like, I'm still searching. 
I, I don't have all the answers. I'm even close to it, but I definitely have a connection. And the more I slow down, I stop the noise this morning, you know, I meditate. I, I get what I need out of that. Right. Mm-hmm. It just lets mm-hmm. me know that you're good, man. I don't care if you have a thousand mm-hmm. emails and the world's on fire, <laughs> like, bro, chill. It's fine. Yeah. It's going to be okay. It's good. It's a good perspective to have. I, I think this is a natural segue into the work that you're doing with veterans exploring treatment solutions and the work that's been born out of this experience, right? And so this is where I think we're going into phase two of this conversation that I'm that I'm excited to explore, which is more at the policy level, at the business level, at the logistical infrastructure sort of layer. You described an experience that felt or that sounded like it had a lot of care and thought and for lack of a better phrase, logistical wraparound support, whether that is a therapist being there, you know, a setting where with an MD or a medical professional and and appropriate screening, these types of things. And so why don't we start with the nonprofit? Tell us about what that work is and how it's grown over the last few years. Yeah. I mean the vets I mean has taken well, it's taken over our life and it is fully our life. Every time we've tried to run away from it, it always seemed to, <laughs> to you know, come right back up because I promise you, like the beginning of this, Amber and I were trying to figure it out and it was just difficult because we're dealing with drugs that are schedule one. We're dealing with veterans. We're dealing with the blowback from the counterculture generation, right? 60s. We're dealing with policymakers, you know, so all this stuff was like crazy difficult in the beginning, but we knew we had something that worked. Like that was a, that was the part. And when you're driven by your intuition, what you know is right, all that other stuff doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And so I live and I'm married to an individual that doesn't know how to quit. And when her gut tells her something that is right, like, that's it. Like, you better bring a full country's army to stop her. And that's what, it, that's what it's been since day one. And so our mission was to just help others. We, we just wanted to introduce this to other people and, and have them get it paid for. Like, that was it. Like, how do more individuals receive the same type of healing that they need? Yep. And how do you fund it? Because as we know... How many people can afford a six or seven or $10,000 treatment? And we're going to still have that fight going forward. And we'll talk about that later. But like someone paid for my treatment, Zach. Like that's why, Mm -hmm. that's the only reason I went. We were like, I just, at the time, like hadn't, we didn't have money. Like I couldn't afford it. I don't even know what we paid at the time, 2,500, 3,000, whatever it was. Someone covered that, right? Some charity. And and we had to figure out how to do that for others. And so that's that's why Vets was born. And, and initially, thank goodness for, you know, for MAPS. MAPS was our fiscal sponsor. So funds mm-hmm. that we, we'd go out. Amber and I would literally fly all over the place, just talk to people and say, hey, this is what's going on. Traditional medicine is not working. Found something that's worked. Look at me. You knew me before. You know me now. Like, there was no lying. <laughs> like, yeah. they, they knew me before. They knew me now. They're like, man, you are a different individual, like, here. And... 
you know, MAPS would be able to make take care of the nonprofit, take care of the nonprofit status of of that. And so that's how it started until, like I said, we were able to do it on our own in 2019. How have those meetings, those pitches, those conversations changed from when you first started the first handful of explaining what you're doing to potential donors to now or more recent times? Can you talk about the difference between those? Yeah. I mean, in the beginning, it was more on, listen to this story. This is going to blow your mind, but but this stuff works and we need to get behind it. Now it's more, well, let me see your three-year budget projections and I want to know exactly how many people are going down and what type of services and what programs are involved. So you know, it's gone from like this, this story of just like, you know, look at me, trust me, this works, yeah. it's getting better to more. We still have some of our very close now friends, you know, some of our, you know, we'll be friends forever that wrote us initial checks that are still writing checks. But now we're getting into other like small businesses or, or corporate philanthropy where they want to like support these type of missions because individuals like Michael Pollan and yeah. there's just so much research. I mean, there's over 200 and something clinical trials going on. Like this can't be fake. You know, people know this is there. It's coming. What we're doing didn't work. And they want to write checks to support it. You know, but we will get into this is that philanthropy can't support research forever. The federal government has to step in. And, you know, we're not talking about cannabis here. We're talking about yeah. these are real life-saving treatments that are going to be the future of mental health care. What we're talking about today with psilocybin and MDMA and ibogaine and LSD in five and 10 years, we yeah. may not even be talking about those drugs, right? Like you right. and I know yeah. that they're going to be, there's going to be derivatives and novel drugs and they're going to be sh- yeah. shorter duration, longer duration, safer. They're going to do yeah. two different things. Like it's going to be all different, but the only way to do that is through federal money. Like we can't, yeah. you know, we can't support it anymore through, you know, David Bronner writing checks, right? Like he's going to go yeah. broke. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, he is, you know, and he's been supporting this for so long and individuals like him. And, you know, it's not fair for those individuals right. to continue yeah. writing checks to support research when we know these freaking drugs work. And so we have, you know, and it's happening. I mean, we got, yeah. you know, Crenshaw and AOC and, and yeah. Morgan Luttrell and all these individuals are on and Governor Rick Perry, like they're stepping up and saying, Hey, like let's, let's throw politics aside. Like let's yeah. do what's right. Like, come on. Why, why are we still waiting to, to be able to appropriate funds for these things? So it sounds like part of the work that you're doing is facilitating veterans to ironically and tragically leaving the country that they live in to go and fought for and fought for (laughs) and go to a foreign country to receive this, this treatment. And, and, And it also seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, that you have a unique vantage point of interfacing with lawmakers and politicians in the halls of power in America. And and it sounds like you're at, I mean, obviously advocating for federal research funding and, and spending. And, and I, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what has that experience been like senators, congressmen, et cetera. Tell me about that. Like this is a, an area of this domain that I think a lot of us are very curious about. We know that people like you have the ear of senators and lawmakers and such. And what are those conversations like? Yeah, it's it's a challenge. Many get it and many don't. Mm-hmm. And 
the ones who get it have to convince the ones that don't that, you know, we have to take a real hard look at this and we have to help where we can. And we're not saying let's just decriminalize all drugs and make them legal. We're saying, hey, there's enough anecdotal evidence. We're starting to see some data. So like, let's just put some more funding towards research. Like, why can't we just do that? Like, it's very easy. How do you say no to research? How do you say no to research to things that there's so many thousands of stories that are similar, but we'll send over $100 billion overseas to countries that are fighting? You know, we can take take a, a few of those billions of dollars and we can almost have this whole thing like wrapped up and figured yeah. out. It <laughs> yeah. almost seems too easy, but it's not that easy. And so, you know, having the conversation with the lawmakers are great because one, a lot of them, we have very warm connections to and introductions to. And we go in there and we tell them the same thing. We tell them the story. Say, hey, I was on these medications that my doctor said will help and they don't help yep. for half the population maybe. And those numbers fluctuate. So what are we doing for the other half? Like I'd say- I would never go on a mission and tell everybody, hey, are you okay? About 50% of us are probably going to die. So are you guys good with that? We're just going to leave you out there and not come back with you. Like that's not ever going to happen. That's not an option, right? So why are we leaving half the country or half the world behind Mm -hmm. when we're treating mental health with things that we know are, unfortunately, primary care physicians are prescribing Mm -hmm. 80 to 85% of everything for individuals. We're not really looking at the individual. We're not looking at the brain. We're not looking at a lot of the history. And so we just try to tell the lawmakers, hey, here's what happened to me. Here's what happened to our family. Look at us now. Why don't we have a conversation? How do we get funding, right? And now there's a lot of fragmented groups, Zach. So because everybody's got their own way, they want to do it. And that could be a separate conversation where we can get into that if we want, but everybody wants to do it their way. Everybody thinks that what they're putting out is what is going to, you know, bring this home, quote unquote, to, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. individuals in need. Um, and so like everything else, you got a lot of different groups out there saying different things. And the, the, you know, what our biggest thing, what we worry about is individuals that are not credible or I don't think are good representations or that I think a lawmaker may scratch their head and go, there's no freaking way that like, that's what we get concerned about. And so that's why also Amber and I have been very, very careful about who we've chosen to partner with, who to bring into Mm -hmm. this circle, because there are still a lot of like so-so actors out there or bad actors or, you know, and and I don't, I want to say bad actors. I don't want to say that anyone's doing anything nefarious. I just want to say that, they're just not what we feel we need to push this message forward in the right way. Because what we yeah. don't want to do is we don't want it ruining everything that we feel like has been literally our work since 2017. Yeah. All day, every day. Not like on the weekends or not on the side job or not I go to a few retreats and support some folks yeah. and I hold space. And no, no, no. We have worked on this every day, all day, in bed at night, sending emails off, putting out fires. Like, we want to make sure that individuals aren't screwing up with Rick has been doing for 35, 40 years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we don't want to screw it up and we want to do it right. Mm-hmm. And so, so we've been very careful about 
you know, the partnerships and who we've chosen to, to, to help push mm -hmm. this message forward. And, and we got to be very careful about, I also feel that what you've said in our first conversation about science back, regulated, clinically guided work, like we're on the mental health side. That's the only way mm -hmm. I, I believe, we believe it has to be done when dealing with pure mental health, trauma related yeah. mental health, serious depression, addiction. We got to be careful on how that is introduced to the market, you know, mm -hmm. and that's the way we're doing it with vets. It's the way we're doing it to our mind. It's the way I believe it has to be done. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for all the other stuff like growth and, you know, maybe minor issues that people are dealing with. You know, there's, there's probably a place for a lot of different things, but I, I don't think also that we can do it all at once, Zach. You know, yeah. that's the other thing, yeah. like, because then you start getting into two different worlds of, well, are you talking about decrim here? Or are you talking about you yeah. know, clinically guided access? And, and, and so we got to be very careful about that too. Again, I think the way that this gets introduced to the world, the fastest and the safest and most effective is the way we're going. And people mm -hmm. will argue about that, of course, all day yeah. long. You're like, no, we need to put churches. We need to just do it on Native American land. We just need to open yeah. it up for everybody. And yeah. again, like, I'm not saying like, like that answer is like wrong, but I'm just saying, I think this is the way that a hundred million yeah. people get to access these drugs in a way that's probably the most safe and efficacious for those individuals. And it may take yeah. a little bit of time, right? We may have to start with ketamine, which we are, right? And we, I, I love the more research that's coming out about, wow, this is the fastest acting antidepressant. It's incredible yeah. for suicide ideation. We're getting 80% response rates, getting like 30 plus percent remission rates. You know, there's a lot of good stuff coming out of it because a lot of it's happening physiologically. It's not just a, you know, a, a psychological totally. thing. And so, you know, granted, we'll start there. We move into MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD, which, you know, I don't have to talk about the well, results let's, there. Let's go back a second because you mentioned, you mentioned Tara Mind and, and that's another initiative that you were spearheading. And so help us understand what's Tara Mine? Yeah. What's the problem you're solving? Is there a relationship between Tara Mine and VET? Like, yeah. just give, give me the whole... The I'll give you the, the whole spiel. So, you know, VETS, of course, was, was founded by Amber and I. I chair the board. Amber's the CEO. She's the operator. She works, like I said, all day, every day. Mm -hmm. It is, she is incredible. I mean, she's so incredible that when individuals that we have funded for treatment are treating, let's say on a Tuesday night, she can't sleep. She doesn't go to bed. She's thinking about that individual and are they going to heal? Are they going to come out of this, you know, better than they went in? Were they struggling like Marcus was? Like, were they struggling like I was? And are they going to have a life-changing experience that he had? Like, who does that? Mm -hmm. She does. And, you know, she, she's got a full team. I think there's, there's over 20 individuals now working full-time, part-time, independent contractors, trauma-trained therapists. There, it's just a, a program. It's unbelievable. So I, I chair the board there. But a, about a couple of years ago, I got approached by an individual by the name of Grant Verstandig. And Grant, Grant dropped out of Brown his freshman year and built a digital health engagement platform because he mm -hmm. saw uh, the system was broken and nobody was connected and there was no continuity between a patient and a provider. And he's like, I'm going to fix this. And he did, and he built a company called Rally Health, and and he sold it to United for a lot, you know, and and mm -hmm. you know, and he just like he just solves problems, and 
he always had an affinity for veterans and he started donating to vets and just like, Hey, you know, this is a solution that veterans need. And I want to help with that. And like every good entrepreneur a year later, he said, this is obviously the future of mental health care. Like how does the world have access to this? We need to figure Mm -hmm. that out. And that's when we started working together. That's what the introduction to Tara Mind was. And basically we're taking what we learned with vets. And my thing with always with vets is what I told you right at the beginning of this conversation was we found something that worked and then I got, and someone paid for me to go experience that. And so, I mean, that's what Tara Mind is. We're just doing it in a different way because as these drugs go through FDA approval and come to market, what a lot of people still don't know is they're not going to get paid for. Insurance companies don't pay for drugs on day one. Insurance companies did not pay for fertility benefits for like seven years. We're just starting to pay for fertility benefits at $75,000 a pop, right? We're talking about a five or $6,000 treatment here. Yeah. And so Tara Mine, we're a public benefit corporation and its mission is to provide safe, effective, affordable access to psychedelic therapy, which you and I know mm-hmm. producing faster results than traditional therapies, not for just treatment resistant, but for a lot of mental health issues. And we don't want to get yeah. all out there, but- on day one, we're focusing on depression. It's the largest yep. issue. Majority of those individuals that are, that are depressed are quote unquote treatment resistant, meaning they've tried mm-hmm. an SSRI, two SSRIs, and they haven't worked. So mm-hmm. it, we're like we're targeting a very specific market. And how we're doing that is we've built a network. We're calling it a centers of excellence network of prescribers or providers, psychiatrists, nurse, you know, nurse practitioners, yep. individuals that can prescribe. Yeah integrative clinics where these treatments take place and therapists, trauma trained, addiction therapists, psychedelic trained. So we have we've one of the first companies to basically package all that together. Yeah. And we're taking that package and so now how do we get this paid for, right? How do we get it paid for? Yeah. The way it works is insurance companies like I said will not pay with blues and etnas and signas and united yeah. are not going to pay for this on day one. Unfortunately, you have to prove to them that like they are probably going to save money by doing this. We know it's yep. going to save because individuals are healing, not doing 20 years of this stuff, right? And so we are taking that to self-funded employers. And that's the mm-hmm. model. That's the model that was used in the past and with my co-founder's first company and my president's first company, yep. Rally. And we're, we're just doing that again. So we're taking psychedelics. Yep. We're introducing it to the employers. We're saying to them, hey, we have something that's going to work for your employees. We need you to cover it as a health benefit. So Zach, just like you get dental Got it. or yep. any other benefit, this is just a supplemental health benefit that yep. if I was your employer, I'm going to pay for you to go get treated. Like that's it. Yep. Aside from that, we're building a very robust technology platform for everybody, for the providers, for the employers, for the individual mm-hmm. that's going to collect outcomes data on every person because we really can't fix anything if we don't know what's going on with the individual. Right. Right. So every individual that's on the platform, every provider on the platform has agreed to share data, of course, Mm -hmm. non-identified data on these individuals that are getting treated. Once we have that data within 90 days, we'll be one of the first companies that will be able to show outcomes data immediately whether individuals are getting better or not. You and I know they're yeah. going to get better because I joke with people. I say, we have the playbook. It was, we kind of have the 
the cheat sheet. Like we know yeah. these work, but like not everybody else does. We have to show that. Sure. Right. The payers want to see that. HR wants to see yeah. that. So we take that data. Then we go to the, the insurers and we say, here, we have the data. We just supported 35 companies that have had 10,000 employees at each company. I need you, Blue, who, who cover a million lives, two and a half million lives, 10 million lives. I need you now to cover this for all your, the individuals that you cover under, under the benefits. And so that, that's the, I mean, that's the model. That's the business is we're making this a healthcare benefit because we believe that this is going to be potentially not just treatment resistant, but we potentially may be like a first line of treatment yeah. for individuals that are suffering. Right. Are the clinics and the providers that that you're are are they already using ketamine or spravato in this sense, or is there any sort of it's like a mi- it's a mixture of both? So some, well, many are, and many are. Mm-hmm. It's the wild west. So right now, protocols yeah. are a bit all over the place. So we have yeah. a really yeah. powerful clinical team and scientific advisory board that are helping devise protocols that are. If we're out here, you know, we're trying to bring those in to figure out like. Yeah. These are best in class, and these are the protocols that are getting individuals to the best, the, the the best standards of care. What we're doing with the platform is, as we are watching this, right, as the technology is working, and we're seeing the individuals that are getting better, and the providers that are treating those individuals, we'll be able to share that data internally with the network to show here's our best in class providers yeah. that are providing best in class treatment. You should be utilizing treatment this way with these type of individuals. So you see now where kind of artificial intelligence steps in. And yeah, now yeah, we're talking yeah. about personalized care on an individual basis. So you kind of see yeah. where this thing is going to go in the future, where mm-hmm. now let's take five years from now where we have multiple treatment molecules for multiple different diagnoses. Yeah. I could take an individual that's 35, female, this type of person. Where do you start? Yeah. Where do you start? Instead of just going... I'm not sure you have depression here. Try this. Like, no, no, no. We're going to know you are probably 95% are going to respond to this. And we believe you're going to get better because we have that data. But that's where, that's where Tarmine's going. Can you talk a little bit about the founding and where it's at now and progress and, and that kind of thing? Yeah. Founded in 2022. So founded a year ago. We were seeded by Red Cell Partners, which is an incubator that, again, Grant is the founder of, and they focus on two verticals, security and defense, solving the largest kind of security and defense, defense issues, and healthcare. And I'm, you know, I'm on the healthcare side. I was one of uh, three companies last year that was incubated. We're on a really good path. We have a really good team. We have an excellent clinical team that's been practicing therapy, psychedelic therapy, Psychiatry, the the scientific advisory board is just you know incredible. With individuals like Dr. Rachel Yehuda has been studying MDMA therapy for PTSD and veterans. Jerry Rosenbaum, Dr. Rosenbaum, who's at Mass General, and, and Dr. Nolan yeah. Williams from Stanford, who just keeps doing incredible work there. You know, and then Dr. Prashad, who who you know she has founded the largest network of, of ketamine practitioners in the world. And so we're just mm. taking all these brains and saying, yeah. here, help us figure this out because yeah. not each one of those have the answer, right? All, all of those individuals don't have the answer, but right. and we don't have the answer. But together, we're really trying to figure out this problem together. We know these work. 
We know it's going to have to get paid for. We're just trying to figure out the best way to introduce this to the market and then do it in a way where we don't leave behind the Medicaid population or the prison population or other individuals how we know are really struggling that could use these therapies. I'm curious how you see this getting integrated into the into the VA. I'm I'm wondering if you have any sort of sense of resistance, excitement, barriers. What's your sense of how this kind of unfurls in in, in that area over the next, I don't know, two to five to ten years, whatever time frame you, you want to take on. But well, what's your sense of that? Well, I hope to be in the in the VA in the next couple of months. You know, we're having uh, very deep discussions right now, several different groups from the top all the way down to individual VA clinics, something called, you know, VA facilities in in different states. You know, initially, you know, again, we're we're not going to say, hey, this is the answer and we should just roll it out to every population. We just want to say, hey, here's what we want to do. We'd like to do a few betas. We just want to test test the population, show you that our technology works, show you that the network we built is real show you that uh, individuals are going to get better from the protocols that we believe are our best in class. And I think we have to make little small wins there, Zach. I, again, mm-hmm. I don't think we want to boil the ocean. You know, I think like everything else, like let's just get really good in, in one, one spot. So these conversations we're having, we're saying, Hey, you know, we'll start here. Let us start at this place, this facility in this area that we think has a strong population of individuals that may be suffering from depression. And we, you know, we mm-hmm, believe mm-hmm. that this treatment is working better than what you're offering at the moment. And we're just saying like, yeah. let's just try that. Let's try it. Yeah. And when we're successful, we'll grow from there. We'll scale from there. You know, we have networks all over the U S right now. And, you know, we can stand up a network in roughly 60 to 90 days. We're also building a training platform where we know there'll be some bottlenecks coming up. And so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We feel that if we we can bring individuals up to like the Tara Mind way, then we'll be able to expand the overall network and, and our network too. So it's a bit, you know, it's mm-hmm. a bit of marketing to say, hey, you know, we'll train mm-hmm. you because you want this. We won't charge you for it because like we yeah. know you don't have any money to pay $10,000 for a training and certification course. Like, right, right. You know, kind of crazy in, in some respects. And so we're doing a few different things, Zach, to figure out how to, again, quote unquote, scale this to more people in need. Because the worst thing that happens is when a person is ready to go treat and and yeah. the VA goes, yeah, well, you can't see anybody for eight months. You're like, yeah, I don't have yeah. eight months. I barely had yeah. eight hours. You know? We're looking at a hopeful FDA decision, approval of MDMA assisted therapy, you know, within 10, 12 months, something like mm-hmm. that. And I, I say I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm I'm ecstatic, right? Like, I mean, this is huge. From your perspective in the healthcare sector, and you said sort of things don't get covered right away. Like if you put your sort of healthcare entrepreneur hat on and and, and sort of think about the first, I don't know, year, six months, 18 months, I'm not, you know, Spravato, I think was approved in 2017 or mm-hmm. something like that. And, and, and only recently has it shown to be one, like J&J and Janssen published revenue for the first time, you know, within the six, last six months. And I think it's out, it's, it's performed better than anyone would have expected, especially because it wasn't introduced into certain healthcare systems in the past. But 
I feel like MDMA is a different story. Maybe it's a it's harder to deliver, but the enthusiasm or the 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 clinical data is is probably way better than than Spravato was. It's like, not even close, <laughs> right? Yeah, like I mean, I, yeah. I I haven't looked at those trials in a, in a while, but like it's not even you know, close. The, the, yeah. The phase three data, you know, for the second phase three trial just was published and it was like, again, not going to surprise people like you and me, but it is a, an inflection point in the innovation in mental health care. And so how does something like that, despite the challenges and the headwinds of a modern US healthcare system, how, how do we get that out there? How does it, you know, roll out? What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I just think in, in three years, I think we have racemiketamine, like real ketamine, psilocybin, MDMA, you know, we'll just put, we'll put S-ketamine behind all of those once, once yeah. all, all these, because, you know, although those results, well, I should say people are paying for them, you know, just the, the S-ketamine results are just not, I mean, they, you still yeah. can be on SSRIs when you take them. I, you know, I think they're good enough for what, what's available right now. You know, but the results just with ketamine, there's not even a, a comparison, and it's so much. It's yeah. it costs three times the amount too, right? You know, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's crazy, not, isn't it? it? So yeah. yeah, so MDMA, I think, is going to change the way that the therapy is done. I think you know, couples therapy is going to be game changer. Yeah, game changer for couples therapy, and for a while, and I don't know how long we're we know, but we believe again, my team that it'll be fee for service for a while. Like you're going to have to just come at, come in with your credit card or cash. And I'd like MDMA therapy. And of course, there'll be a, a very stringent probably intake. And well, I shouldn't say that. If it's fee for service, they'll be pretty lenient probably <laughs> yeah, on yeah. who they're going to take into the clinic. Once insurance covers it, then there'll be a much stronger psychiatric kind of assessment and eval to allow individuals to treat. But you know, initially it'll be cash pay. I, and I don't know what the cost is going to be. I'm going to throw a number out there, five or 10K or something. We'll see. But people will pay for it. Most yeah. of the people won't be able to afford it. And so companies like Tara Mine are going to have to show that we take that and the same thing. We walk it right up to the door of these self-funded employers and say, here, you need to offer this up. Your mm-hmm. employees, you need to cover the benefit. People are going to get better. Here's the data. Like the data is off the charts. You know, seventy percent efficacy and and remissions are like close to fifty percent. I mean, it's just unbelievable that, that both phase three results. And I don't know if those numbers are exact, but it's let's say roughly that's that's what the yeah. results are. So I, the data is there, safety yeah. and eff- safety is there. We just have to convince employers to first, you know, cover this for their employees, and then and then to me, it's off to the races because then we start collecting data. We're, we're going to be able to show improvement right away because we know these these drugs work immediately not like antidepressants mm-hmm. which takes six mm-hmm. six weeks 12 weeks whatever so we can we can immediately have outcomes data like within the first 90 days to show hr to show blue cross to show united yeah and then we can go back to them and say here there's a real roi here we just got mm-hmm. a person better in 12 weeks this person was on antidepressants for seven years and they were seeing a therapist for 20 we just fixed them in 12 weeks. How's that ROI? Yeah. You know, and, and, and MAPS has done a bunch of, of, of course. Cost effectiveness. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have that. I don't, I don't have that in front of me, but I know it's, it's, it's significant. It's significant. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember it either, but it's, it's pretty solid. But, you know, Zach, at the end of the day, what I get excited about, like, they work. 
like people are going to get better. People are actually going to heal. Mm-hmm. They're not going to just put a Band-Aid on a symptom and yeah. hopefully the person feels a little bit better to get out of bed in the morning. Like we're talking about people making changes, like real changes to their life and keeping their families together and they're, you know, married and their children and generations, you know, like this is, this is the global shift stuff happening. It's pretty exciting, isn't it? It's, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm excited. It's fucking it. exciting. It yeah. is exciting. I want to wrap up here and just ask what's next for vets and where can people support, learn more? Yeah, Zach, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we have our website, vetsolutions.org. We have a ton of information on there. We have programs every day of the week, breathwork, meditation, yoga, men's integration, women's integration. Like we just, we've wrapped around everything to make it a true community of healing. We have e-courses on there. I, I send people there all the time that are non-veterans to say, hey, you want to just learn a little bit about this in a very simple way? Go to the vet's website, just go through the e-course and you could just learn, click through, you learn history. So, you know, it, it's a, we're, we're calling this a movement now, you know, even at Tower Mind, we're saying this is a movement. There's not like a company or a business, like it's a movement. And we want individuals to think that way because this is a movement. This is a movement towards flipping healthcare on its, mm-hmm. at least mental healthcare on its top. So, but uh, yeah, if you want to support our charity, vetsolutions.org, we, we live and die by philanthropy. So, you know, we could always, always use a hand there. And then, of course, if you're interested in what I'm doing day to day to bring these to the masses, it's taramind.com. And I think we're just taking what we learned at Vets and elevating it to a global market. Well, I think what you're doing and your story and the variety of things that you're working on is a good encapsulation of, I think, the both the challenges and the, the the infrastructure requirements for this paradigm shift in, in mental health care treatment, right? Like, I think it's not the kind of thing where you take this medication and call your doctor the next day kind of thing. It's a full-on deep dive into what can be some pretty gnarly and intense healing work. So yeah, I'm glad we got to discuss this. I'm glad you got to share with with my readership and my the Trip Report audience so the scope and scale of your work and when I speak with people who are on the front line, so to speak, of of advocating for care for marginalized or populations with massive unmet need, I just got to say thank you and and appreciate your work. So, thank you, Marcus. Yeah, Zach, we we love every minute of it. And and like I said earlier, what you just said, I preach this: if we roll psychedelic therapy out to the masses, and we forget the communities that really need it. Like we have failed them again. Like the system has failed again, right? Like there's plenty of places that you can go to pay for all types of stuff that insurance doesn't cover because it's expensive. And and unfortunately, marginalized communities who can't afford that stuff don't get the benefits. So we have to, have to get this paid for. That has to happen, but we'll figure it out. Yeah. Appreciate your time, Marcus. Zach, thank you. Thanks for listening to The Trip Report. We hope you enjoyed it. You can sign up to receive our free newsletter and get the podcast sent directly to your inbox by going to thetripreport.com. This podcast is a production from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. If you're interested in learning more about building companies in the psychedelic space, head over to beckleywaves.com to get in touch. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. I'm Zach Hegney. 
The Trip Report is produced by Kula Production Company with coordination from Caitlin Jabari. See you next time.